And I invite you to turn your Bibles with me to the Gospel, to the book of the prophet Habakkuk. Book of the prophet Habakkuk. We'll be reading the whole chapter 3, though our meditation will focus on the first two verses of chapter 3 of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets, but not because of the least significance, but just because he wrote one of the shortest books, but yet with a profound and deep meaning for us today. Habakkuk chapter 3. Let's read the whole chapter. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from His hand, and there His power was hidden. Before Him went pestilence, and fever followed at His feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The, the perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. O oh Lord, you were pleased with the rivers. You were displeased with the rivers. Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea? That you rode your, your horses, your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows, Selah. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his, its voice and lifted its hand on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows they went. At the shining of your glittering spear, you marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from the foundation to the neck. Selah. You thrust through with his own arrows the head of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses, through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and it fills you no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will join in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on high hills to the chief musician with my string instruments. So far, the reading of God's word. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing once again on this sermon. Let's pray. Our heavenly Lord and great Lord of lords and kings of kings. O oh Lord, when we meditate upon your word, Lord, how hard it is sometimes to make sense of your sovereignty when we see all the evil around us. 
when we see the wicked nations, when we see the wicked prospering, as we just sang, Lord, how they mock the church. So, O oh Lord, we ask this morning that Thou may open our eyes to see Thy sovereignty and let us learn how to rejoice even in times of trouble. Let us learn how to pray and to sing Thy praises, Lord, even in the days of evil and affliction. And, O oh Lord, we especially pray, Lord, Revive your works, Lord. Bring reformation and revival to your church, Lord. Let us see once again this nation being so much filled with your glory, Lord. The evil is judged. Oh, Lord, how we grieve for the sins of the nation, Lord. So have mercy. And bring once again reformation and revival, starting even with this church, starting even today, Lord, even with our own lives. Help us to hate sin and to love Jesus more and more. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. One way or the other, the appearance of evil around us shocks us either war or sickness, afflictions and tribulations of many kinds, death or corruption in our society. The reality of evil troubles us. For some, it is chaotic. For others, it is something that keeps us away from sleeping. But one way or the other is always a shocking reality, something that troubles us. A surprise or chaotic. But often the same question arises from many different angles or circumstances. The same question arises. Why? Or why, Lord? Why is this happening? When in some sense, while we experience what is happening to us or what is happening around us, seems to challenge our theology or seems to challenge what we know to be true about God, that is, He is good and that He is all-powerful. So why? Why, Lord? Why is this happening? Why is there evil around us? Well, in our secularized society, the Old Testament prophets are much closer to us than we often think. The reality is that our society today is very much alike the society that Habakkuk was living in. Once the West was known, was known for being a Christianized society. The West was known for being a Christian nation, a Christian society, but it's not the case anymore. And in many senses, the West today is very much like the days of Habakkuk. Idolatry is prospering. Many types of idolatry, either the God of money, the God of prosperity, the God of self-realization, of entertainment and pleasure, the God of freedom of rights, you name it. But one way or the other, our society is following other gods, but not the true and only God. So looking for the prophets... We find, we find much how, how to face our own world today. How could a holy God tolerate evil? Or even how could He use evil? The work of God is mysterious and sometimes challenging for our theology. And the whole book of Habakkuk deals with this matter, with the matter of evil. And we'll try this morning to make sense of the whole book. We will understand the whole theme of Habakkuk, what Habakkuk is dealing with. We'll look specifically to Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. First, we'll see humility before God's work. Second, submission to God's work. And third, hope through God's work. 
We'll see how to respond to the Lord's mighty works of salvation through judgment. The Lord's mighty work of salvation through judgment. So first let us consider humility before God's work. Habakkuk lived in a time of injustice and idolatry, as I mentioned. But not only outside Israel, but even in, inside Israel. Habakkuk starts his book book pointing out all the sins of Israel, of God's people. He was saying that the Torah, the law of God, is powerless. Chapter 1, verse 4. The law is paralyzed across the nation. You see, Israel was supposed to be God's people, but see, Lord, your law is perilous, powerless, even within your nation. We have forgotten God's law. That was Habakkuk's first complaint. Habakkuk lived in a short period of time before the invasion of the Chaldeans, before the invasion of the Babylonians, three or four years before that great war and that great destruction of Jerusalem. But he is here complaining. Israel had once tasted the spiritual reformation under King Josiah, but now they were living under King Jehoiakim, his son. And Jehoiakim abrogated and reversed all that his father had done. And now all the great reformation that they tasted under Josiah was way gone. And Habakkuk is now bringing this complaint before the Lord. Oh, Lord, all that reformation is long gone. Your law is forgotten. Your people, who are supposed to be known by being God's people, have forgotten your word, Lord. A decline into unrighteousness in the midst of God's people not only on the pagan nations, but in the midst of God's people. Then God responds to Habakkuk's complaint, saying that he is aware of Israel's injustice and evil, and he will bring Babylon to judge them. The unexpected answer of the Lord is a message of exile. And Habakkuk then gives a second complaint. Chapter 1, verse 12, to chapter 2, verse 1. Saying that Babylon is even worse than Israel. So how could the Lord use them? Well, Habakkuk is well aware that Israel deserves judgment. But what about the Babylonians? They are even worse than Israel. So how could the Lord use them? Habakkuk faces the challenge of a Christian walk by faith and not by sight. How to make sense of what is happening, or how to make sense of what is about to happen, when in many senses it challenges his theology. A tension between what we experience and what we know to be true about the Lord. Habakkuk's thought was simple. If you are holy, you cannot stand evil, Lord. So how could use the Babylonians. They deserve greater judgment than we do. In other words, why is God doing this? Why, Lord? Why? Have you ever asked this question? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to the church of God? Why is this happening to a Christian nation? Why? Why, Lord, trying to make sense of what is happening? Ultimately, this is a problem that every Christian faces. Every one of us will face this reality one way or the other in our lives. Trying to make sense of God's sovereignty when it seems to contradict what we are seeing around us. What we don't see happening to us or to others, what we think to be the best for ourselves and for the church of God. And God's answer then to Habakkuk is mind-boggling. 
God's answer is so important, so life-changing, that it has to be written in tables of stone. Chapter 2, verse 2. Just like the Ten Commandments. Do you remember, children, how the Lord Himself wrote the Ten Commandments with His fingers? So now, the answer that the Lord is going to give to Habakkuk has to be written in tablets of stone. And you can ask, well, are God's people going to be free from judgment? Are they going to escape the promised chastisement by the Babylonians? No. No. But yet, throughout all possible conditions and the most severe circumstances, chapter 2, verse 4, the just shall live by his faith. That is the answer. That is the answer that the Lord gives to Habakkuk's complaint. The just shall live by his faith. And Habakkuk 2, verse 4 is so mind-boggling, so important that is quoted over and over in the New Testament. It's quoted in the book of Romans, Galatians, Hebrews. It becomes the very cornerstone of Christian theology. The just shall live by his faith. We could be thinking, if the Babylonians deserve judgment, if they are going to be utterly destroyed because of their evil, and Israel has also committed the same evil. So what will happen to us, Lord? What do we deserve? If the just didn't live in by faith, we would be treated just like the Babylonians. The reality is that we deserve the same treatment as the Babylonians. Complete destruction. God's law was forgotten in the midst of Israel. They had, in practice, become just like those pagan nations around them. Idolaters, corrupt. But the just shall live by faith. The fact that God uses Babylon doesn't mean that He was not going to judge them. The rest of the chapter, of chapter 2, gives a list of five woes of how God is going to deal with the corruption and immorality of this nation. The corruption of Babylon is not unique to that nation. In fact, the corruption of Babylon becomes the standard in the rest of Scripture for wickedness and corruption. When the Lord wants to say that a nation became corrupt, He just compares them to Babylon. And then, the judgment over Babylon also becomes the standard for judgment over evil. And this, of course, climax in the book of Revelation, chapter 17 and 18, when the Lord brings the final judgment over Babylon, over the great Babylon. So the wickedness of Babylon is not unique, but the judgment of God over evil is also not unique. In fact, it's going to be patterned throughout all history until the final great judgment. And this would already have been enough, don't you think? Enough to silence the prophet, to silence the prophet's complaint, to obliterate the prophet's audacity of questioning God for tolerating evil, to know that God will judge evil. But now, in the midst of these five woes, there is yet another promise. In the midst of judgment and harsh condemnation, the promise that God will be glorified. Chapter 2, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God will be glorified through everything even judgment. That is the promise that the Lord has given to Habakkuk. The Lord will be glorified through everything, even His work of judgment. Nothing, nothing in the entire world will fail to give glory to the Lord, one way or the other. 
either by his work of redemption or by his work of judgment. But one way or the other, everything will glorify the Lord. Oh, brothers, the Lord's response to Habakkuk, that even through suffering, the just shall live by faith, and that at the, at the end, everything will glorify God is so powerful, so overwhelming and life-changing, that the prophet now breaks into worship. He's not complaining anymore. He's not at his watchtower, as he said, complaining to the Lord anymore. No. He is now praying and singing to the Lord. As we come now to chapter 3, he just breaks into worship. There's nothing else he can say to the Lord but pray and sing to him. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigeonoth. And the book of Habakkuk opened and closes now with a reference to his prophetic office. In Habakkuk 1, verse 1, it opens with the burden which Habakkuk the prophet saw. And now, in the closing prayer, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. And the reality is that the word of the Lord changed Habakkuk. The word that the Lord gave to Habakkuk changed him from a prophet that was complaining, audacious, complaining to the Lord, to now a humble prophet before his Lord. The word in it changed him and is now demanding to change us as well. The humble prophet is now praising God. He cannot ask for anything else. The only thing he can do is praise. Notice that the emphasis is not just on prayer, but also on singing. It says... Shagayonoth. This is a very uncommon word in the Bible. It only appears here and at, at the heading of Psalm 7, indicating that this was composed as a, as a psalm, as a song, a hymn for the church. And there is also a threefold sila all throughout the prayer, verse 3, 9, 13, and also reinforced at the closing of the chapter to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. This was composed as a song. Habakkuk was now singing to the Lord. He was not complaining anymore. He was singing, praising the Lord and praying to Him. The humble prophet comes before the throne of grace. And the only thing he can do is worship. Sometimes we are tempted to feel that suffering is a hindrance to worship. When we are suffering, when we are facing trials and tribulation in our life, we feel like this is something that hinders us from worshiping the Lord, that keeps us away from coming before the Lord and praising Him. But you see, Habakkuk does the very opposite. In face of so great of a suffering and something that we cannot even imagine, he comes and he praises the Lord. And this idea is becoming foreign to us nowadays. No wonder how many, no wonder that so many people want to close the imprecatory psalms, those psalms that deal with God's judgment, such as we sang this morning. This part of the Psalter is being forgotten to dust. And but this is not a secret doctrine. This is not something only that are dealt with only in this Psalms. No. You cannot even open the Psalter without dealing with this reality that God is glorified through judgment. That's what we saw in Psalm 2. That the Lord is magnified and glorified through judgment. And this truth is already at the opening of scriptures, read right in Genesis 3, chapter 15, that He will be glorified, that there will be salvation through judgment. Not salvation despite of judgment, but salvation through judgment, by crushing the head of the serpent. That is how He will save His people. 
And the humble prophet hears the word of God and he fears. He fears. Oh Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. He fears. But not a desperate fear, but a worship filling fear. Not a man centered fear, but a God glorifying fear. The Puritan Edward Marbury says this Fear, directed by faith, will soon find the face of God. For fear humble us. But faith directs this humiliation to the mighty hand of God. Fear makes us full of desire. And faith directs our desire to God. Fear makes us run. And faith shows us the face of God and invites us to run there. And thus, the contemplation of God's justice and mercy thus fill the heart with zeal and the spirit of supplications. That's the reality. God glorifying fear. Filled with faith that finds the face of God and worship Him through all circumstances. And the prophet is now speaking in a much different tone than he spoke before. Now in a tone of confession, of humility before the Lord. For a heart does not seek forgiveness apart from humility. But the prophet does not finish simply by being humble by God's mighty works. He's also going to show full submission to God's work. Full submission to God's work. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. These two petitions, they are parallel to each other, each unfolding more the prophet's petition before the Lord. But before, before we ask ourselves, what is this that is about to happen? We need to ask, what works? The key question here is, what works exactly is Habakkuk talking about? And this word only occurs twice in the book of Habakkuk. Here and in chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5, it says, For I will work a work in your days, which you would not believe, though it were told you. What the Lord has told Habakkuk in all the book, that he would bring the Babylons to judge them but that he would save the just by faith and he would be glorified by faith. All his work, that is the works that Habakkuk is referring to. It's a work of judgment, but not divorce from salvation. A work of salvation through judgment. So we come to his petition, O Lord, revive your work. Revitalize your work, Lord. Even if your work means judgment, Lord, do it. Habakkuk didn't like it first, but now he's ready. Even if it includes judgment by the wicked people, a work of discipline. Oh, Lord, do it, Lord in order that we can see the results of your work, Lord, in order that we can see your glory being magnified throughout the nation, do it, Lord. Do what needs to be done so that we can be reconciled to you. Oh, Lord, revive your, your work. Are we ready to pray for a revival like this? These verses are often used for prayers for revival, but are we really ready to pray like this? We often use these words not knowing, not knowing the sense of this work of revival. But if we understand this work that the Lord does, are we, re are we willing to pray like this? 
First of all, it's not our work. It's nothing we can do or we can manufacture. It's His work. Oh, Lord, revive Your work, Lord. It's not ours. And at the same time, this frees us. The only way we would be willing to pray like this is if we understand, oh, Lord, it's Your work. It's not about me, Lord. Not about my health and wealth, not about my life even, but about your glory. So, oh Lord, revive your work, Lord. Magnify, fill your church with your glory, Lord. We will only pray like this if we are ready to make his name glorified and magnified and not ours, not ours. And the problem with the church today is not that we are still with Habakkuk in chapters 1 and 2 complaining about evil around us. It's not that we are still not understanding what the Lord is doing and complaining about evil. No. The problem is that we are apathetic. We are boiling down slowly like the frog in the pan to the sins around us. We acclimated to the sins around us. We got used to it. We got so used to it that we are not even complaining like Habakkuk. We acclimated to the sins around us. And we don't pray for revival because We don't believe it or simply because we don't want it. We know what the Lord does in the midst of a revival and we don't want it. The only way we can pray for something like this, as Habakkuk is praying, is through the eyes of faith in which doesn't matter the consequences. His glory is enough. Doesn't matter what happened. Doesn't matter what happened to our security, to our peace, to our bodies. His glory is enough. Are you ready to pray like this? God's grace is enough, even in the worst circumstances. The Lord will use Babylon to judge Israel, and then He will judge Babylon. God's response is that even if what we see contradicts what we expect, the just shall live by faith. His purpose will be accomplished even if it seems against our expectation. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God will execute judgment and He will be glorified in the end. See, if this was a promise of better circumstances, this would have been a weak gospel. A weak gospel that wouldn't be capable of bringing comfort to us when we face trials, tribulations, when we face evil in our life. But this is a message capable of bringing comfort despite circumstances, and even through hard circumstances. Do you see how this is a message capable of bringing comfort in the hardest afflictions of our lives? This is capable of comfort, comforting the widow, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the orphans, the abused, the oppressed, everyone and anyone even when we don't understand, we have these promises to hold you that the just will live by faith. Not by anything that we do and what we deserve, but by faith alone, in Christ alone. And that even if we don't understand, God will be glorified in the end. Even when we cannot make sense of why is this happening, 
Or how is this going to glorify God? I know it's going to glorify Him in the end. Because it shows that even through the hardest affliction, even when we cannot comprehend, God will be glorified. And we have the greatest example, don't we? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him during the cross, for the joy, for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame. And they sit at the right hand of God the Father. May the Lord help us to pray like this, that for the joy that is set before us, we are willing to go through the hardest afflictions of life because we know the joy that is set before us. Oh Lord, do what needs to be done to fill your church with your glory, to fill our lives with our, your glory, Lord. For the joy that is set before us, do it, Lord. Revive your works. Make your name known across the nation. Revive, Lord. May He enable us to worship Him like this from all possible conditions. Habakkuk began the book praying for better circumstances. But now he closes the book praying that despite circumstances, he will rejoice in the Lord. And our generation seems to be disconnected from this reality. We got so used to health and wealth and abundance that we mistake the presence of these things with the blessing of the Lord, with the presence of God Himself. We fail to recognize the place of judgment and justice in the divine decree. We want God to be glorified by delivering us from judgment, by delivering us from trials, but not through our suffering. Do not wait for your suffering to end to glorify God. Do not wait. Do not wait to make sense of what is happening to glorify the Lord. Do not wait to understand, to try to make sense, to put the pieces together to glorify the Lord. And you can say, oh, but I, I don't feel like it. I don't feel like doing it. Do it against your feeling. Oh, but I fear. I fear greatly what is happening to me. Like Habakkuk did. But even so, do it. Come before the Lord. Do it anyway and say, Lord, I don't understand your works. I have seen your works, Lord. And I fear them. But even so, oh Lord, revive it. Make known, Lord, make known to me first and to the others around me. Revive it, Lord. You see, the Lord didn't promise to deliver us from suffering, but to deliver us through suffering. Oh, Lord, revive. Do thy work, Lord. Even if it means suffering. And let your name be magnified in our lives. Let them see, Lord. Let the world see your name being glorified in our lives, even in suffering and affliction. May we submit to God's work, for His glory is enough. And if the text is stopped here, 
I think we could already go home in a spirit of humble submission to God's work. But there is yet another petition. There is yet a place to plead before the Lord. A gem that shines through the dark background of divine justice. At the end of verse 2. In wrath, remember mercy. There is hope through God's work. Hope through God's work. The prophet faces the reality that there would be no ground to plead before the Lord. His case was closed. Israel was found guilty. No place to plead. What now? But there is yet one place. The prophet casts himself upon the throne of grace of God. In wrath, remember mercy, Lord. Though God was justly angered against Israel, the hope of salvation was not lost. O Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. Even in the chastisement of His people, the Lord never forgets mercy. Our human intellect often tries to separate these two things, God's wrath from His mercy, as if a condition for Him to be merciful was the non-existence of His wrath. We cannot make sense of these two things. You see, this work that the Lord was about to do in Jerusalem was very severe. It would include the destruction of Jerusalem, the slaughter of thousands of people, a work of judgment. Yet, Habakkuk is ready for it and praying for it, and he's asking for mercy in the midst of it. He's ready to glorify God, even with empty barns. For he knows now that full barns and times of peace are not a synonym of blessing. And faith is what enables us to glorify the Lord even when the barns are empty. You see how Habakkuk was so changed that he's ready to glorify the Lord even in the worst of afflictions to see God's mercy in the midst of judgment. And Habakkuk then goes on to recount how the Lord has already saved His people like this in the past. So his plead for the Lord is for the Lord to do it again. Do it again, Lord. His glory has already covered the, earth, the heavens and the earth. Chapter 3, verse 3. And he made the world and the nations tremble before his acts. Verse 6 and 7. He defeated the rivers, allowing Israel to cross the Red Sea. Verses 8 and 9. And through the anointing of his king, he crushes the head of the enemy. Verses 13 to 15. You see, this is an Exodus-like victory of bringing salvation through judgment bringing justice and rescuing the oppressed, a type of the future deliverance that would happen through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the anointed King, the head, is His glorified by bringing salvation through judgment. He was bruised and He crushes the head of the serpent through judgment, to bring salvation for his people. Habakkuk looked forward to the accomplishing of this promise. He looked forward to the day the anointed one would come and in wrath remember mercy and save his people through judgment. But now 
Now we can look back. We can look back saying, Yes, Lord. Jesus Christ has come. And in wrath, you have remembered mercy. We can say that, Yes, it is true, Lord. Even in the greatest wrath of all, you have remembered mercy. And Habakkuk is doing what the Lord has commanded him to do, to live by faith. And he confessed that even in the hardest afflictions, he's ready to glorify the Lord and to rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will join the God of my salvation. The promises of chapter 2, verse 4 and 2, 14 are the two arms that enable a Christian to glorify the Lord even in the, deep, the deepest afflictions of life. In the deepest pits of affliction. To know that God will be glorified at the end, and that the just will live by faith. And sometimes, when we are going through suffering, the only thing that we pray for and that we wish for is for the Lord to bring it to an end. We don't wish the Lord to teach us anything and not to be glorified through it, but no, we just wish it for the Lord to get it over. Our only praise, our only prayer becomes, Oh Lord, get it over. Oh Lord, bring it to an end. We want to be like Joshua, or to think ourselves to be like Joshua, strong and courageous. But the reality is that we are often like the Israelites, yet in the desert, grumbling, complaining before the Lord. When our children are born, we often start to desire that, well, I just wish them to be out of diapers. And then they grow a little bit and then we wish for them to start sleeping through the night. And then we wish them to start eating by themselves and then to be more independent and then to be out of home. And then we realize we just wish our whole lives away. And we treat our whole lives like this. Our studies, our work. But we don't wish for the Lord to be magnified and glorified even through the simple tasks of our lives. We wish our lives away. And we don't wish the Lord to teach us anything through these moments. And to be glorified even through these moments. And the prophet now is not asking, Oh Lord, forget wrath. Oh Lord, forget this talk about wrath and remember mercy. No. Because he knows there is no contradiction between God's holy judgment and his love. You see, there is no such a thing as the problem of evil, as the world puts it. There is no contradiction between God's sovereignty through His mighty decrees. And this helps to set apart Christianity from all other religions in the world. From all other worldviews out there. A God does not toss a coin to decide something. No, he has all things predestined for a purpose. Either to good, to them that love God, as Romans 8.28 says, or the wicked for the day of evil, Proverbs 16.4. But either way, God will be glorified. Christianity is the only religion that can make sense of evil in the world. It's not without a purpose. Even if we don't understand, we can rest in this promise. But perhaps all that I said, 
from the, up until now wasn't enough to convince you. <clears throat> You're like doubting Thomas. You must see to believe. All that I say wasn't enough to convince him that though God is all-powerful and all-good, he not only permits, but he also uses affliction and suffering for a purpose. So let me illustrate this another way. And I'll conclude with this final illustration. A German preacher wrote a play, a drama called The Sign of Jonah to deal with all the brutal legacy of the Second World War. The Holocaust and the slaughter of thousands of Jews, all the inhumanity and evil that was happening in the world at that time. And the book aims to answer the well-known question, why does God allow suffering? And who is to blame for all this suffering? And the story goes on showing the court process of trying to find the guilt of all atrocities. So first, the people themselves, particularly the Germans, are accused of being responsible for all atrocities and all the horrific fate that was happening. But the Germans reject this idea, saying that the guilty wasn't theirs. Perhaps the guilty was of the soldiers or who killed them or of the one who built, who built the furnace to burn the victims. But the population rejects this idea also. Perhaps the guilty was of people in power, higher in the chain of command, officers or even queens and kings. And they go on and on to inquire more and more people, seeking who was the guilt of this whole massacre. Until finally, they come to a new accusation. All in one voice, God is guilty. God is guilty. You see, it is a blasphemy to put God in the dark, borrowing C.S. Lewis language, to accuse the Creator as if He had to respond to the creature. But even if it were possible to put God in the dark, granting that this blasphemy against God's sovereignty was possible, and worse, if God was found guilty, what then is the sentence? And the judge asks how to inform the verdict. And this is how they proposed to be phrased. Let me read. God shall become a human being, a wanderer on the earth, deprived of his rights, homeless, hungry, thirsty, in constant fear of death. He shall be born to a woman somewhere along a country road, and the moans of the poor creature shall ring his, in his ears day and night. And he shall be surrounded by the feeble, the sick, the filthy, by people bearing marks of leprosy. Rotting corpses shall bear his path. He shall know what it means to die. He himself shall die. And when at last he dies, he shall be disgraced and ridiculed. Do you see the irony? Do you see the irony? Even the blasphemy of putting God in the dock, of judging the Creator. He did this. He received the sentence upon himself. Not for his sins, but for ours. This, in fact, was the only undeserving evil in all history. The just was given for the unjust. He did this. The cross was the greatest evil that could ever happen the sinfulness of our sin 
finds a display in the horrors of the cross. And from his cross, from his cross, flows grace. Grace. In wrath, he has remembered mercy. As a preacher once said, it took the greatest evil that ever happened to show, to produce the greatest love that ever existed. In the cross, we have the apex of salvation through judgment, of in wrath, remembering mercy. The cross fulfilled all that we have seen so far. He showed the greatest humility to take for himself the form of a man and even to die. In the cross, he showed submission to the Father, for he came down from heaven not to do his own will, but the will of the one that sent him. In the cross, we have the climax of this verse in wrath. Remember mercy, the apex of salvation through suffering. As he drank the cup of wrath to pour out the cup of divine grace and mercy. This is the most powerful tool to help you to find comfort even in the greatest affliction. Because if God brought good out of the cross, He can bring good out of anything else. In wrath, there is mercy. But the greatest good is not material things. It's not His stuff. Not even our lives. The greatest good is His glory. His glory. Man's chief end and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy Him forever. His glory. And as we go out, we are enabled to pray, revive your works, Lord. In the midst of the years, make it known. Oh, Lord. Let not your judgment be for the destruction of your people, but for building it up. For building it up, your church, Lord. In wrath, remember mercy, Lord. And as we do so, we are fully assured, as we look back to the cross of Christ, knowing that in wrath He has remembered mercy. May all of us be enabled to pray like Habakkuk, saying that even in the worst circumstances, yet I will rejoice in the Lord of my salvation. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. Amen. Let us pray to the Lord. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our God, we come before you, Lord, with humble submission. But filled with hope, Lord. For as we see all the evil prospering around us, we know that thou art not a God who is powerless or who is unjust. No, no. We know that we have a God who is all-powerful and all-good, and even when we cannot understand, Lord, even when we fear and know, Lord, how we fear, we know that you will be glorified in the end. And, oh, Lord, we know that we live not by our justice, but by the justice of Christ. And, oh, Lord, we know that in wrath you have remembered mercy. Oh, Lord, mark us, Lord. Mark us by the cross of Christ. Help us to live a life looking unto Jesus.
looking unto Jesus. And for the joy that is set before us, help us to glorify God, to glorify you, O Lord, and to rejoice in the Lord of our salvation. So we pray, Lord. O Lord, revive your works. Make it known, Lord, in the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Yes, Lord, we know that our nation has greatly sinned against you, Lord, that your church has departed from you. Even if it requires judgment, Lord, do it, Lord, but don't leave us without your glory. But fill your church with your glory, Lord, starting today. Fill our lives with your glory. Prepare us, Lord, to meet with our Savior in the heavens and to rejoice in the Lord of our salvation forevermore. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.